All right, good evening. It's good to be with you again. Thank you for the interaction last night. And let's move right on in and um, into our Wednesday subject, Proclaiming the Gospel. Uh, I have this slide up first every evening because I'm assuming that probably every evening there's somebody new that hasn't seen our outline for the week. So we've gone through commission to go and then strengthened by God, and tonight it's Proclaiming the Gospel. Uh, just a bit of follow-up from last evening. There was a question there at the very end. Um, Sam Stolzius, is he here? There you are. Now, did I understand you right? How can you tell if a, if a person is spirit-filled? Right. Okay. Did any of you think about that today? Is there any response to that? By their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. I thought of that verse myself. Anybody else? God's spirit will never lead you in contradiction to what the Bible says. Okay, good. A point that we're going to consider later on tonight is that every Christian has the spirit. So if you're born again, you have the spirit. Anybody else? Now that's a, he talked about it. So that would, that would kind of go... Yeah, talked about Jesus. So that kind of goes to their, by their fruits you shall know them. And his, his life, his actions, his words were indicators of, of what he had and whose he was. Does that answer your question, Sam? Did you have a comment on that? I also had a comment from uh, last night as I was exiting the church that um, one of the people here told me that persecution scattered the Christians and that in itself spread the gospel, uh, which was a good observation that, you know, maybe God is using persecution, at least here in Acts, to, to further his ends to get the word out there. Um, that, I don't know if that seems like a contradiction or not, God bringing persecution, I don't know. But I, I think there's probably some, some truth to this. And it reminded me of, of the, the phrase or the concept that we are not our own. It's, it's not about us. So it seems to me that if God chooses to bring persecution, who are we to question him? Okay. Uh, coming back to these what I call individual reports tonight, we'll, talk, we'll, we'll hear about interaction with government and tensions within the church. Are there any volunteers to um, look at places in Acts where the Godhead was mentioned by somebody and look a little bit into that person's perspective of who God is? Or for the last one, any volunteers to look at times of physical signs? Those two would be for tomorrow evening. Okay. I'll check it out and see what I can find. All right, then. Uh, in, our, in our typical um, procedure, I'm going to look. Before we get into the main outline, which I showed you at the first, we're going to first look at an alternate outline or a, a different way of, of slicing and dicing the book of Acts and, and understanding it. Uh, this one comes from... Bible study tools, which I think maybe is the last, the same source as the one last night. Uh, this writer specifically talked about the history of salvation as it is portrayed in the book of Acts, and he also talked about the book of Luke because his he made the point that the way that salvation is is portrayed 
and the assumptions behind how we read the book of Luke are the same for the book of Acts. So I picked this out largely because of the book of Acts. So he says the history of salvation can be understood in two parts. And part number one is the, the basic assumption. And notice that word assumption because it's true for us. The basic assumption that God works out salvation within a special history that is also a part of general world history. And that may seem kind of odd or convoluted at first glance, but basically, uh, at least the way I understand him, we don't, we don't read the Bible and we don't think that God created a second history or a different set of history in order to bring salvation. No, we, we look at it and we say, all right, so in the framework of from Genesis to the return of Christ, which we kind of understand as human history, general world history, that within that framework, within that bucket, God did his particular work which was a special, certainly a special history. The history of salvation is a special history, but it happens within general world history itself. So the, uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts portray God at work in the, the time and space of this world that he created, in the time and space of history as we know it, of general history. So God works out salvation. His plan of salvation happens within... It's a special history, certainly, but it also is a part of general world history. So that's, that's point number one. And then point number two, um, and again, these are, these are ways that, that we look at these books, and most of the time we just kind of assume these things. We don't think about these details necessarily. But point number two is that the Jesus event was not just another event. It wasn't just point number eight or something like that within God's special saving history, but it's the event. It is the crowning climax of what God intended to do uh, with salvation. In both Luke and Acts, there's constant references, and we, we've mentioned this, I think, numerous times this week, that there are constant references to Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament, uh, other things in the Old Testament as the setting within which the Jesus event is understood. So Isaiah prophesies that he's going to come, and, and he comes. And, and there's a constant looking back at the Old Testament and using the Old Testament to help understand what God is doing in, in what we today call the New Testament. But Jesus is really the climax. It is the, uh, I, I capitalize the word the. So Jesus is not just another event. That would almost be demeaning. Jesus is the event. That is what the Bible leads up to. That is what the Bible focuses on. Any comments on that? There's point number one. God works out salvation within a special history that is also a point of general world history. And then point number two, the Jesus event is not just another event, but it is the event. It is the climax of God's plan. Any comments, questions? Okay, then we'll keep moving and we'll go right into our main outline for the evening. Again, tonight is titled Proclaiming the Gospel. And this particular outline, uh, as I mentioned before, but, but just to clarify, especially for those that may not have been here before, we're not trying to look at every detail as we go along here. We're certainly not looking at most verses. Um, there may even be some chapters that we skip entirely, and that's just because of time. Um, so tonight, in proclaiming the gospel, we'll be focusing on Acts 8 and Acts 10, Philip and the Ethiopian and Peter preaching to the Gentiles. It is also tonight that I'm going to start paying just a, a little bit more focus to this thing of the what, what Aaron aptly titled the progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I, I've mentioned that numerous times, but I'd like to 
I have some slides later on where we'd like to consider that in just a bit more detail. Philip and the Ethiopian, in, uh, again in Acts chapter 8, uh, there's a, there's a in, in, human, in general human thinking, there seems to be a, a fascination with chance missionary encounters. Um, for instance, the, the article that I was reading about this last night made the point of, you know, we kind of enjoy hearing stories about the missionary walking along a jungle path in Africa somewhere, and, and then suddenly a, a native appears on the path and says, can you point me to God? Or, you know, that, that sense of, of that type of what we would call chance missionary encounters. We kind of have a fascination with those types of stories. Uh, and especially if they happen far away from areas that we are used to. So for us here in Lancaster, we, we enjoy hearing stories about, you know, Africa or Australia or maybe Antarctica or wherever. Uh, but they hold a little bit more fascination to us than if they happen half an hour north in Africa. Because the, the remoteness, there's something about it that it fascinates us. And so, so some of the thinking here on Philip and the Ethiopian, if we think about the audience to which this book was written, now we're not sure who Theophilus was, but if he was a Roman, this story would have probably really piqued his interest. Because, and I'll go to the next slide here, there's a picture of basically the then known world um, centered around the Mediterranean Sea. And now, uh, countries and boundaries have changed in the meantime. Uh, you're well aware of that fact. Uh, so in this case, this man was called an Ethiopian, but if I understand correctly, at that time, that area was in what, what is now today northern Sudan. So you can see Sudan directly below Egypt. And the, the modern-day country of Ethiopia is actually southeast from there, and is, I don't even show it on this shot. So if that's true then this fellow, this Ethiopian, he was from the, the southernmost border that you could get in the world, out at the edge. You kind of see that the chance missionary encounter part coming in here, where Philip was going along this road, and, and he found this man, and it was down on the edge of the world. And to Romans, to, to a lot of Romans, that would have probably been very fascinating. Now that, you know, there's maybe some assumption in saying that, but so we're reading into this a little bit. But what I think was going on here is that God was simply, he was publishing, he was fulfilling what God, what he had already said about the scope of the church's mission. As in this guy, this Ethiopian, he was down on the far edge. Doesn't that sound like anyone will? Whosoever will may come. The gospel's for everyone. Include the Gentiles. And this wasn't just a Gentile in Jerusalem. It was on the far southern edge, way down at the Eck. And so don't you think that, again, if Theophilus was a Roman, don't you think he may have been thinking, well, okay, the gospel's for him. Well, then for sure the gospel's for me. For sure the gospel's for mainstream Romans, people in the middle of the world. So I, I think... God was using this as, as a way just to basically say, people, I've already told you, the gospel's for everyone, Gentiles included, and I'm demonstrating it by getting this farthest away person that we can find. If the gospel's for him, it's for everybody. Now, I, a lot of this I can't prove, so there, you know, there's some personal opinion coming out here, I'm sure, and, and even some imagination. But I, it, it seems to me when I look at Philip and the Ethiopian that the center bullet point here, that God is, God is publishing the scope of the church's mission. Now, the word scope 
basically has the idea of, of a measurement or a boundary or an area. So um, uh, maybe if uh, someone would come to mow the, the, the school's property, they might ask, well, what's the scope of the job here? You're paying us a certain amount. Are we supposed to do all the side edges too, all the side lawns or just the main football? And what's the scope? So scope has the idea of what, what's, the, what's the exact area? What, what are the boundaries here? So, and, and that's so in that sense, God is publishing the scope of the church's mission, which means it's for everybody. It's not just for group A or group B or group C or even subsets within those groups. I don't know. Do you agree with all that, with some of this, some of this imagination and analysis? That's what, that's what I see when I, when in, in this story. And it's, it's good because, you know, we're Gentiles. So I, this is good. We're, we're glad that God's scope, the, the, the scope of the church's mission is worldwide. Whosoever will may come. Comments? Go ahead. Mm. Yes. And, and God does that even today in, in the Muslim community. Someone gets healed, and whole families get healed, get saved. Uh, one of the cases in Point Fuji, actually, is wherever it is, wherever it is today, puts a sick man, drops him down in the middle of a great big party. Very common. Mm. So God uses individuals or, or the. the the, the circumstances involving an individual to create a lesson for the larger church. Sure. Anybody else? I'm going to toss out immigration again. I, I keep, I'm not sure why that keeps coming to me, but um, in this, this, this New Testament shift or progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament, suddenly the Gentiles are part of this, and the Jews just they had so much trouble getting that. But... For, for us today, it seems to me that immigration is, is maybe a, a really good application of the whosoever will part. Um, so I think that God's view toward immigration, God's view toward people of, of other circumstances, people that want to come into the United States for opportunity, I think God's view of the, of God has a soft view toward the immigrant, which often is largely, uh, what's the word, um, it contrasts or it's, it's, it's at odds with how government looks at immigration often. Okay, uh, some more thoughts on Philip and the Ethiopian. Uh, the, maybe, maybe there's a question of, of, maybe some of you have thought about this, that why Philip? Because when you look at the context of where he was, he was in Samaria and they were having smashing success in Samaria converting people left and right. The church was growing. It's almost as if, uh, if, it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Why would you interrupt success? Why Philip? Weren't there other people that, have gone, that could have gone down to, down to the Gaza Road and talked to this Ethiopian eunuch? Why Philip? Why leave a thriving ministry? Well, I don't know this for sure. But it's, it's interesting to think about. But um, I, I, I kind of see a picture here of God calling his most effective evangelist down to, down to an even higher opportunity. 
So yeah, Philip was having smashing success in Samaria, converting people, and I think the church in Jerusalem actually sent some people to assist him in the work, and then suddenly he was called away. But I, I think it's a picture of God calling his, one of his most effective men and sending him down because God knew that he would be even more effective there. I think of it this way. So imagine a, a business that has five salespersons, and four of them are, okay, they do a good job, but the one is really good, and boy, he rakes in the sales. Wouldn't that business tend to send the really good salesperson after the biggest accounts? Probably. I think it's kind of the same way here. Now, I don't know that for sure. But um, as, for me personally, when I look at this account, that's a pretty good answer to the question of why did God pull Philip away from Samaria when things were going so well there? I, I think he was just sending his best guy down to the, down to the big job. I don't know that for sure. But it is interesting that uh, today, here in 2017, there, there are billions of people in the world that have yet to hear the gospel. And so uh, just using this as a bit of an application here, if, if God pulls our most effective evangelists away and sends them out, I don't think we should be surprised. And when God calls, they should, whoever God calls, those people should obey immediately and unquestioningly, just like Philip did. By the way, just, let's just think of the opposite angle here. What if God told Philip, Philip, you go down and, and talk to this Ethiopian fellow, and Philip, what if he would have said, but hang on, God, a lot of success here. You sure you want to break this? You know what you're doing? Then wouldn't we kind of question Philip for questioning God? You betcha we would. So, Wait, last night I, I really emphasized obedience, and if God tells us to do something, do it. And that's what I see happening here, that, you know, there's, there's various factors that we could debate about this account, but one thing that's pretty obvious is God told Philip to do something, and Philip didn't question it. He just went and did it, and we need to be exactly the same. There's another uh, concept I'll touch on briefly here, um, the, the difference between unbelievers and believers in understanding the Scripture. And this is what I was referring to earlier when we talked about how do you know if someone is filled with the Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 talks, I, f- I forget the exact text, but something about that the unbelievers have a hard time, um, the, the, the ways of God are not known to them or something to that effect. And so there's, there's clearly two different levels as far as understanding the things of God, and the believers are on a completely different level than a non-believer because of the Holy Spirit. And so that's interesting in, in looking at this account um, as far as contrasting Philip and the Ethiopian, contrasting those two men and how they understood the Scriptures. It says that Philip opened up the Scriptures to him. And then the question, the Holy Spirit lives where? I, I already answered that earlier. The Holy Spirit lives in every Christian and, and grants us understanding of the things of God, and that's a wonderful blessing. All right, I'm done with Philip and the Ethiopian, unless do any of you have more comments before we move on to Peter? Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. 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 Good. All right, then, moving on to uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to the Gentiles, uh, reminded me immediately of the, um, actually, I, I read this, it wasn't just a reminder, I read this in a source last night about the verse in Romans 10, 13, and 14, and 15, where it talks about how shall they hear, and we need to send people, 
And I, I forget the exact progression in those verses, but I think you know the verses I'm talking about. So how shall they hear? And so in this case, Peter's preaching to the Gentiles. And there I go again, patting the Gentile part of it. But, you know, uh, when we look at Peter preaching the Gentiles and preaching to the Gentiles and the lessons we can draw from that, one of the clear things that is there immediately is, is the verse that talks about we're supposed to have an answer for the hope within us. And that's for us today, here in June 2017. And, and wow, Peter sure had that, an answer for the hope that was within him. And that was whether he was preaching to the Gentiles or whether he was dragged into a courtroom and had to answer to angry Jewish leaders. He had an answer. So I, I kind of ran with that a little bit here. Uh, I don't know if this is going to put you on the spot or not, but do you personally have a good answer if someone would ask you right now, why are you sure you're going to heaven when you die? Do you personally have a good answer for that? And I, I don't need to hear feedback on it. It's just a, a question of challenge for us. Or if somebody would ask you, so who is Jesus? Would you have a good answer? And I don't know exactly what a good answer is. I'm just asking. So all that to say that when we look at Peter preaching to the Gentiles, I, I'm not necessarily going to be looking at the, the details of what he actually said in the sermon. We, we certainly could. That would be a, probably another Bible school on it, all in itself. But the, certainly a lesson for us is that he clearly had an answer ready all the time. It didn't really matter who was asking or challenging him. And so I, I think that's a challenge for us. Do we have good answers if people ask us basic questions that we think we know? We probably have an answer for it, but the Bible says that we're supposed to be prepared to answer for the, to have an answer, to explain the hope that is within us. There's uh, various ways of telling. Uh, most of what was done in the book of Acts was through oral communication, which on this slide I've, I've just titled telling, uh, spoken word. But our dress or our, our clothing, our expressions, our actions, our attitudes, those are all part of proclaiming the gospel. And I think that's probably pretty well understood here. Um, there was one other thing that I thought about putting here, and I, I guess I kind of forgot. Got sidetracked with something else. Um, what I was going to put here, the, the very top bullet point is telling, which is spoken. But I, I was going to put our, I was going to break that down a little bit more and just make the point that our exact words can be a part. Not, not just the fact that we're speaking orally, but the actual words that we speak can can all be a part, uh, you know. If if so, as a really, kind of a crude example, if if I would be up here or or if you'd be talking to somebody and they would pound their fists, you have to believe in Jesus, uh, you know. So there's a there's a diplomatic and a, a spirit filled way to present the gospel. So not just the fact that you're saying it orally, but also the words that you actually say and expressions and the attitude in your heart and so on. But could someone read John 13, 35? I don't know if someone has that looked at that already or not. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. Good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's all I have tonight for the outline itself. So I, I didn't have as much material in Peter preaching to the Gentiles. Any comments on Peter preaching to the Gentiles and lessons we can learn from that before we move on?
Going on then to um, some application questions, which again is our, our typical procedure here at the end. We talk about application a little, uh, a little bit more specifically. This is a quote, and it's actually two slides long. It goes like this. You never know the influence your testimony might have on others. Future missionaries and pastors may be around you. Are you a help or a hindrance to their spiritual growth? Are you like Philip and willing to go out of your way to share the gospel? Have you ever heard someone say that he has read the Bible but not understood it? Maybe you have said this yourself about certain verses. This is the same thing that Ethiopian told Philip. But Philip was able to clearly explain the scriptures. How could Philip do this? And let's discuss that question a little bit. How could Philip do that? Somebody. Yes, which is probably the primary reason. I think there's more to it, probably. He knew the scriptures. That's what I was waiting for. And someone over here said something. Yeah, yeah. So he knew the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, application for us today, Bible reading, memorization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. Isn't that the part at which the, the spirit, the wooing of the spirit will, will, will do its part and win the person's heart? But I, I think God's, God's, God wants us to present the truth and let his, then let his spirit take it from there. And there's numerous verses that talk about that, that the Bible is, is a sword. Um, the, there was another verse that came to mind, and then just that quickly it left. Um, the, the, the word of the Lord will not return to him void, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Uh, there's a, something else that kind of stepped on my toes a little bit. Uh, you know, when, if, if you would be told tonight that you, would, that you want a million dollars, wouldn't you kind of jump around and be glad? Excitement? Probably. Okay, so how do we treat salvation? Isn't salvation worth a lot more than a million dollars? I mean, literally. Because salvation answers the question of what happens to me when I die. I mean, it answers a lot more than that, but it gives us assurance. So there's, uh, when, when I look at Acts, whether it's Peter or Paul or John or some of the other big-time names there, there's pretty clearly some excitement, or a lot of excitement. And they weren't afraid to show it. So that stepped on my toes some. Um, so there's another application thing. All right, the two individual reports, let's go to them quickly. I, I don't remember who it is. I'm sorry, I guess I should have written down names. But I think someone took, said they would look at interaction with government. Okay, go ahead.
Good. Thank you. I looked at uh, tensions in the church a little bit, and I found uh, two. There's probably more, but the, the Jerusalem Council, when, when there was a lot of tension on are the Gentiles really allowed to, to partake in salvation, and should they follow the law of Moses? That was kind of the hot-button issue. What do we do with the law of Moses? Um, this, this could be a really political subject real fast, you know, with, with a lot of disagreements on exactly how to look at it. But the one thing I noticed was that they came together and tried to find common ground. It didn't look to me like they had a lot of spat on, I'm right, you're wrong, that kind of thing. It was more of a, let's come together and what do we, what do we agree on? What can we, what can we find in common? And then they went on from there. And then Paul and Barnabas had um, the argument about taking John with them on, the, I think, the second missionary journey. And this, again, you know, we could have a dozen different interpretations right here, maybe two dozen with the amount of people here. The, the way it looked to me when I looked at that was I, sometimes I've heard them being criticized for splitting. But I, I, I think, and again, this is mostly personal opinion, I, I see them giving each other space, kind of saying, oh, okay, so I, I don't agree with you, but that's okay. You may, you may do that. Um, kind of agree to disagree kind of thing. The word metron is a word that I, that I learned at work. It refers to what you're, what you're really good at doing by yourself without a lot of help. That can be thought of as a hobby, but things that you like to do, and you don't even have to get paid to do them. You just have fun doing them. It's what you're naturally good at. And so I see these, these two Christians giving each other space to do their metron, to do what they're good at. I, I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but that's how it looked to me. All right, uh, I have some things on Old Testament progression and New Testament, and I didn't get to it, but maybe tomorrow evening. Uh, before tomorrow evening, just something to consider tomorrow, and maybe you already know the answer, but how many missionary journeys did Paul take? See you tomorrow. <laughs>